right. Hi, everybody. That was a nice short passage for us to to go over. Uh, so I'm Bill, and I'm one of Chris's friends, and um, kind of been here since we started doing this thing. So that's pretty fun, and also I was really honored to be able to do this. I haven't preached a sermon in quite a while, uh, but that is actually what I'm educated in. So I I grew up in a Christian household. And about the time I was 18, I had a pretty uh, radical experience when I was kind of just stumbling around, which is about what you do at that time of life. Um, but it was radical enough that I ended up going to um, a Christian university and getting a degree in, in ministry. Um, and basically, to sum up the huge, <laughs> I guess, sort of journey that that put me through into getting to here is that I I learned that um, if we elevate our own opinion, if we elevate our own self-importance, that that ends up that ends up being pretty pretty divisive. Um, it leads to tribalism, I guess you could say, where it's like, oh, this our our group is better than you know this group or something like that. Whereas focusing on the love that Christ teaches ends up bringing in a you know a harmony of communities, if you will. Like we're in this Methodist church, we don't we're not at odds with them, right? I mean, this is working out. Uh, pretty well. So I think it's important for us to basically as we go on this journey, it's a it's a journey of education as we learn about each other, what we're doing here, about the word, things like that. Um, I like Robert Frost's quote. He says, uh, education is the ability to listen to almost anything without losing your temper or your self-confidence. And so if we kind of focus on that, then that'll keep us from constantly wanting to pull out our own like sword of truth, you know, to fight anybody who's ready to do battle with us, um, which actually reminds me of this time I was on a, a cruise ship long ago, and I'm you know, talking to this guy, you know, we're just kind of standing on the railing, just looking out at the ocean, and finally I asked him, so do you believe in God? He said, yeah. I said, oh, me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? And he says, oh, I'm Protestant. And I said, oh, me too. What, what denomination? He said, Baptist. And I said, oh, me too. That's great. But you... Um, Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist. I said, oh, me too. Is it Northern Baptist conservative or Northern Baptist liberal? And he said, Northern Baptist conservative. I said, oh, me too. Is that Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region or is that Northern Baptist conservative Eastern region? He said, Northern Baptist conservative Great Lakes region. I said, me too. Is that Northern Baptist Conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1872 or Northern Baptist Conservative Great Lakes Region Council of 1911? And he said, Council of 1911. So I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the edge of the cruise ship. So anyways, um, if you want to go to the next slide, we'll get started here. So this is modern Israel. Uh, the light shaded is like the uh, traditional uh, land here. And... Basically, what we have is uh, the the West Bank is kind of that kidney bean shape right there. Um, it's to the west of the Jordan River, and then you have Gaza in the southwest. And then you have Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, which is the next one. And then you've got Nazareth, where he lived, which is way up in the Galilee. And then you've got uh, Jerusalem in the middle, the capital. And then up at the top, you've got the Sea of Galilee. And then the Jordan River runs all the way south to the Dead Sea. And so basically what I'm trying to do is, is get start with the idea that this is the land that 
that's still around today, but these are kind of the areas that we see in biblical times. And so we have basically, especially in the gospel, we have a Jewish Messiah speaking to the Jewish people in the Jewish land who operate under a Jewish religion, right? So we kind of are going to get a set and setting of where it is. So if you want to go to the next slide, this will give us an idea of the scale of the size of Israel. So it's if this were put in the eastern United States and where Jerusalem is, you just kind of place it over Washington, D.C., this is, this is kind of the size. It's pretty small. So it's about the size, uh, land size, and population of New Jersey. So it's not, you know, when you just see it in a map by itself, you kind of have no idea, but that gives you an idea there. Um, so let's look at Israel at the time of Jesus. So now you kind of see it's broken up by region here. So you hear about the apostles' ministry going from Jerusalem to Judea, which is in the south, and Samaria, and then he's up in the Galilee, and then to the ends of the earth, right? So that's kind of how that's, that's broken up. And then connected to that last map, I'll just, I highlighted the same cities and the seas and the river that, that we looked at before. So just to give you an idea of what, what we're looking at here. So uh, the last part is that this sermon, so he's raised in the Galilee in Nazareth, and when he's starting his ministry, um, the historical site of where this sermon took place is probably near Capernaum, which is the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of important. That's, a, that's still a little bit to travel, but he's not in Jerusalem or anything like that. It's still, as Chris wanted to say, it was kind of like out in the country, out in the nowhere of nowheres, right? Um, but he did have a lot of people that were gathering here. So uh, basically just did this to kind of get an idea. I always like to have an idea of what what's going around around in the land and things like that. If you have an idea of time and if you have an idea of place, it's easier to understand what's being spoken as opposed to it just being kind of like a, a fairy tale type story. So, um, so we have Jesus in the land of Israel, a Jewish land with the laws and the religion and the culture of these people. And, uh, and this law that they have is, is what we know as the law or Torah. So in Hebrew, the law is known as the Torah and a commandment in the law is known as a mitzvah. And so a plural of mitzvah would be mitzvah. So, for instance, when like a Jewish boy or girl turned 13, uh, they have a bar mitzvah or a, a bat mitzvah. And that basically just means that they are son or daughter of the commandments. That's what that means. So anytime you read commandment in the scripture, you can read mitzvah, right? So you get an idea of kind of like this is what they still say that to this day. So in uh, Luke, they ask, uh, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Elohenu Adonai Achad. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. And then he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. Right? So he's saying, This is the greatest mitzvah. This is what they're, what they're saying here. So let's take a look at the laws that Jesus referenced in our scripture today. So uh, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus is speaking concerning some commandments of the law. So everything that he goes over, he is he is uh, he's giving some some uh, commandments, some mitzvot, and you have to we have to remember that the purpose of the law, the Torah, is not just like a religious law like we would understand. This is actually the law the the law of the land of Israel, and so the laws themselves are fairly short. If you ever decide to go through Leviticus and then again through Deuteronomy, you'll kind of see that these laws are pretty short. So what they rely on is kind of an interpretation over time to see how, what, what these things kind of mean. So what, what I'm suggesting here, especially in this passage, is that Jesus is giving the law that you can read in the scripture and then he's giving his interpretation of it and basically saying this is, this is the intention. This is what God wants you to know. This is how you ought to live your life. You can't just read this tiny little thing and go, 
okay, I'll just not murder anybody. Like, thanks, you know, walk off. He's basically saying, no, 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 you can't. He's grabbing him and saying, there's more to it than that. So Jesus is going to cite the Torah and he's going to say, y'all heard it said that, but I tell you. And so I always like to put the y'all, I like to put y'all in when I interpret it. In, in modern English translations, they don't have a difference between second person singular and second person plural. It's all just you, right? So if I were to say, can you go get me a drink of water? Or I would say, you are all listening to me. I still use the same word, you. So in the King James, they used to say ye. So you could tell if he was talking to a group of people. So I like to, I like to use y'all. That's what we used in Greek to, when we were translating so that we would know who it's for. So Jesus is saying to the whole group on the mount, Y'all have heard it said, but I tell you. So let's look at the laws he references in our text. Y'all have heard it said, do not murder and do not commit adultery. And he has law concerning divorce, about keeping your oaths, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and love your neighbor. So these are the laws that he references and gives interpretation. So what exactly does this law do, this Torah? Let's, let's look at how we can view these laws. So these are the two verses that are prior to the to what uh, we read today, and I think it's really important because it kind of establishes and frames uh, what Jesus' stance is on the Torah and the law. So he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the Torah until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these mitzvot and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these mitzvot will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So, this is the first recorded public speaking uh, that Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew since right he, he got baptized, he went through the temptation in the desert for 40 days and now he kind of starts his ministry in the Galilee and he's, he's teaching and preaching and healing people and his reputation spread, right? So if we looked at that map before, it kind of says all these people from the Galilee, from Judea, from the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities and down in Jordan, they all basically made this trip up in the Galilee to hear about this guy. So since the news of his reputation traveled, they were probably thinking, well, who, who is this guy? What is he teaching, right? So there's probably rumors, just like when he asked Peter, you know, who do the people say I am? Some people say you're Elijah, some people, you know. So there's probably this idea that Jesus has these varying rumors about him by the time they get here because they want to hear what this guy's all about, right? He doesn't have Facebook posts that people can go to, so they're just kind of playing operator throughout the whole land. So I think one of those... Uh, Based on this, I think one of the, the rumors that's going around is, is that some people are saying he's preaching lawlessness. He's preaching against the law, right? And so he wants to point out, no, 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 that's not, this is not the case. That's why he, he's, he's, he's probably responding to that rumor saying, don't think that I've come to do away with it. I'm not saying anything goes, right? So he's, he's, he's not, I'm not saying disregard the commandments. And I, I say that the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen will not pass. It is super important. So he's basically saying he want, he's making a point before he starts up this, I uphold the law. Don't think I'm a lawless man. And in fact, um, Paul is actually charged with the same accusation. We can see it in Acts 21. Um, so this is, this is near the end of Paul's uh, ministry. And it says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
And when they heard this, they praised God. And they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the Torah. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, which is to turn away from the law, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to their customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the Torah. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual morality. So this is what we learn from the passage in Acts. The gospel, according to Paul, that had been preached throughout the Roman Empire is different enough that the Jews living in Jerusalem didn't understand how Gentiles fit into the group. Like, remember when we went through that huge Acts study, that was the big deal. It was like, how, how is this supposed to work? This is a Jewish religion and Jewish Messiah. How did the Gentiles fit into it outside of conversion? So Paul had to tell not only the Jews in Jerusalem that he followed the law, but that Jews need to continue to follow the law. So he did that by paying for these purification rites of some Jews who had taken probably a Nazarite vow. And what else we notice here concerning the Gentiles, which is probably all of us, is that they are not obligated to keep the law the same way the Jews are. He makes that point to reference it back to Acts 15. What what are you responsible for? You're responsible for uh, abstaining from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, basically blood in the meat, and meat that's strangled in sexual morality. Same thing in Acts 15. He's basically saying it's good. En- that's good enough for the Gentiles. Those are the laws they have to keep. Everything else, don't worry about it. So the verse here is essentially James telling Paul, hey, you're doing fine. So let's go back to that earlier passage one more time. We see that Jesus doubles down on the primacy of Torah, stating that not even the smallest, oops, the smallest letter or piece of a letter will pass away. And he says further that anyone who disobeys the Torah and teaches others to do the same will be the least in the, king, in the kingdom. Right? So based on what Jesus says here, what defines who is least and greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Their obedience or disobedience to the law and the teaching of the law. So if anyone believes in the redemptive power of Jesus but says that the law or the Torah is done away with, they might make it to the kingdom of God, but they might be sweeping streets of gold. So I argue that the life and the teachings of Jesus are the doing and the teaching of the Torah, the the law, but the way that God intended it. So let's take a look. Uh, I want to do one little rabbit trail here that I think is interesting. Um, At the Hebrew alphabet. So Hebrew reads, like a lot of Near Eastern, it goes from right to left, top to bottom. So we have alphabet, alpha, beta in Greek, and they have aleph, bet in in Hebrew. Um, and so I've highlighted the smallest letter, the yod. Right, so it's not the smallest letter will pass. There it is right there, tiny little apostrophe, right? And then I have also, in terms of the, there's a little debate about what the stroke, the least stroke of the pen is, but here's, here's my guess here. Uh, here's the bait and the kaf, right there, the B and the K. They, they're pretty much identical. The difference is at the bottom right of the B, the bait, there's a little, what's called the heel. That's the only thing that separates them. So the difference between a bat and a cat, right? They're two different things altogether, but that difference would be a little tiny little thing there. And then here's the difference between a dalit and a resh, the D and the R. Same sort of thing. They look identical, except in the dalit, up in the upper right, it's got that same heel that just kicks out the least stroke of a pen. Will not go away. So, 
There's one more interesting point I want to point out in the Hebrew language that, that will kind of illuminate here. Uh, this is the Hebrew word uh, for the name that God gives himself. So Chris talks about when, when we do the Yahweh prayer, how the ancient rabbis would pray, would basically say the name of God without vowels. Here, here it is. Right? It looks like this. It's spelled yod Hey vav Hey. I'll read from right to left. So there's, uh, here's that Yod, the smallest letter. Um, there's also a long-straining tradition for Jews. They don't say the, the, this name of God. Um, and they instead call them Adonai, or they say Hashem. So like when Christians, something good news happens, they say, oh, praise God. And the Jews would say, Baruch Hashem, blessed be the name. So that's the, the Hashem. So they say that instead of saying Yahweh. Um, but when you add the vowel points to, so when he says when you pray it without vowels, it's like you say it without vowels, it's like this. But when you add the vowel points, it looks like this. Oh, sorry, you can go to the one more forward. There you go. So if you put these vowels in, it gives you another word that is also a name of God. And you can go one more. So you take that YHV, the Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, and when you put those vowels in, it's Yehovah. So that's how you get. That's how we get the name Jehovah. Is basically when the vowels are put into the name that God gives Himself, Yahweh, you get Jehovah. So there you go. That's just something I thought might be a little interesting. So I appreciate you letting me digress. All right. So we'll get back to it here. This is the verse immediately preceding our text for today, which I know is really long. We're not going to go read it verbatim uh, again. Um, but he says, "I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teacher of the law." you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So it's important to remember, I think, and I'm totally willing to be challenged on this, but it's good for, for struggling through the Gospels. I think it's important to remember that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are not the enemy. Not in this passage, not in the Gospel. They are no more enemies to Jesus or God than Americans were enemies in the Civil War, is what I suggest. They aren't the enemies because they are devoted to God and to God's law. Now, they may be in error, and they may be in grave error. But, those of you who are in parents, if your children sin or are wrong or are in error are going through a bad patch in life, do they become your enemies? A resounding no. Do they require correction and discipline? A resounding yes. Right? So we might find later in the Gospel accounts that the Pharisees are the object of much of Jesus' criticism, right? There's, and, and there are a number of traits that they have that just do not correspond with the kingdom of God that Jesus is presenting. It's not compatible. But we have to recall out of the whole world at that time, you basically have Israel as the chosen people of God, and out of those chosen people of God, you have these people who basically went through, you know, Chris has brought it up before, uh, you know, these people that get through their education system. Once you reach a certain age, if you can't cut it, you're basically doing your dad's trade. And if you, if you can, you go to the next step. And if you make it all the way through at that point, a rabbi is going to come and say, okay, come follow me, right? And this is, this is what's kind of undergirding Jesus' ministry. So these Pharisees and the teachers of the law are that very thing. So they're devoted to that call that Israel has to be a witness unto the earth and a light unto the nations, regardless of how right or wrong or effective they are. It's just that's their responsibility. So, and I think that Jesus engaged with them more than, say, the Sadducees, although he had something to say about them, because they were probably his kin. They were closest to. They'd be the thing. He he would expect the most out of them, right? Like you've got it. You should know more than anybody what to do. And so he has a higher um, he has a higher bar set for them. So when Jesus points out to the audience that their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees and the Torah teachers or the teachers of law, it's because they are held in high regard. Now, when he says that, he might be criticizing them or he might be setting a very high bar. We 
can't pretend to know unless he gives us more clues. But I think an equivalent message to us would be if you are asked that your writing must exceed that of Pulitzer Prize winners or that your painting abilities must uh, exceed that of the, of the artists that have their works hanging in the Louvre or that your athleticism must exceed that of an Olympic medalist. I think that's essentially what Jesus is trying to get across that level, right? So if Jesus came to us today and said, your, uh, you know, your righteousness must exceed that of Bible college teachers or evangelical pastors or something like that, I think is what we're getting at. So let's get into how Jesus approaches what has been taught by the Torah or taught of Torah by the, by the teachers and the leaders. So this is the last little kind of Jewish sort of framing I want to do here. So you have halakha. And so halakha is a, bi- is a body of writings including the commandments in Torah and the rabbinic writings throughout the ages designed to teach faithful observers how to live life according to God's law. So all religions, all, all religious sects, all religious leaders, um, even nations and peoples have something like halakha, right? It teaches those who identify with a, with a group, either a religious group or you're an American or something like that, how to live according to whatever code or authority that uh, the group adheres to. So in Judaism, there's the Torah, and it might give a, a commandment like, uh, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk, which is given three times in the scripture. But throughout, t- throughout time, it's taken on this command of not, uh, basically not cooking meat and milk together. So they basically interpret over time. They don't eat cheeseburgers, right? It's, they don't have, that's the, way, that's the way they interpret that scripture. It's not necessarily important how it got there, but that doesn't matter. The Jews have this command. Uh, the leaders throughout history have interpreted a way to understand that command. And then the people who are adherent to the Torah, who call themselves Jewish, basically they all they, they say, okay, this is how we obey God, and so they do it. So I say that halakha is similar to constitutional law. Constitutional law is both the constitution itself and all the subsequent rulings and accepted legal opinions on whatever defines what is and what is not constitutional. And we need to remember that the Torah is the constitution of the Jewish people. It was given by God through Moses as a way to govern the Jewish people. So all of this is to frame what Jesus is talking about, who the Jewish people are, what the law means to them, how it is taught, who is teaching it. And it can be best understood, the Torah can be best understood as a legal framework. But Jesus wants to show how the legal understanding of the law doesn't go far enough because it doesn't, it can only deal with behavior, right? And he's trying to get at hearts. So this is what, this is what he's trying to get at is, is what does the law mean deep in your heart? So where have we heard this talk about the law and the heart recently? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will put my Torah within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So this is the Jeremiah 31 passage concerning the, the new covenant that Chris spoke about a few weeks back. He spoke about how the covenant uh, would be different, right? And they would be understood differently. But I think it's important to know while the new covenant will not be like the earlier covenant, which was given, basically giving the Torah on Sinai, um, it doesn't mean that they don't fit together. And it doesn't mean that this new covenant gets rid of the old one, which is called abrogation. But we showed that Jesus made the explicit claim, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will pass, right? Because it's going to be put in the heart of people. So it's got to function differently. So the same God is using the same thing, the same substance, but his desire for how he wants people to be 
Um, and he's teaching it differently. That's what Jesus is basically doing here. So let's look at what Jesus understands all of that to mean, having the, the mitzvah of the Torah, having the commandments of the law written on our house and how it is, how it is taught. So he says, y'all heard it said, but I tell you. Here's the form that he lays out introducing the Torah. Um, and basically Jesus says what the people have either read or heard, uh, what is taught, and then he illuminates what, is God, what God is getting at. He's like, so he's basically saying what is written or what you've heard or what are you taught is this. What has been culturally accepted and true is this. And then he gives the command. And then he says, but here's what I'm telling you this means. So while what I brought up in terms of all this Jewish context, the Hebrew languages and all this stuff, it might seem a bit complicated and foreign, and that's because it is, right? We have to remember this is like a 2,000-year-old text from a totally different part of the world, so there's no reason to think we should immediately understand um, kind of this, this setting that they're in. But I think, regardless of all that, while I think this is helpful, I think it's something that if you go back to the Scripture, you'll find some more interesting things that you didn't notice before. But the message itself that Jesus gives is not really complicated. In fact, most of what Jesus said is rarely complicated. It is simple, but it is not easy. It is simple, not easy, not just here, but in all these teachings. So let's look at these examples of how the principles are simple and easy. I'm just going to sum it up here. Here's the simple, not easy. Y'all have heard it said, don't murder anyone. I tell you that anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment. In other words, do not hate. So the phrase Jesus uses is nurses anger against his brother. It makes me think that the, the issue is that someone wrongs you and maybe they're truly evil or at least the acts are evil or maybe there's a series of acts that are evil but if you're focusing on how bad they were how bad these acts are you're doing nothing but like building up murderous thoughts in your heart. And then you are responsible for that internal state that you're in to some degree. Right? So Jesus is drawing this moral equivalency between the act of murder and the intention of hate or the hate you have in your heart. So he's adding a layer of strictness to, the law, what, to what the law teaches, but it's not something that can be enforced by a law of a kingdom, right? but it's, it can be enforced in a different kingdom, the kingdom of God. That's, if I have hate in my heart, what is a cop going to be like, yeah, I think you might have hate in your heart. Right? There's, I'm not going to get busted. That's the difference here. So let's look at another passage. Simple, not easy. Y'all have heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who lusts after someone in their heart has committed adultery. So, in other words, do not lust. That's simple. But we run into the same principle as the murder commandment. It's just additionally strict. The root of adultery is lust. So again, Jesus is adding, is adding an additional layer of strictness to the law, which is understandable. So he's showing the moral equivalency, basically, between, between lust and the act of adultery. But again, this is something that cannot be enforced, right? You can't, you can't see into to men's hearts to, to enforce that. Let's look at another one here. Simple, not easy. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So I'm going to read the passage that this comes from because I think it gets a little more interesting here. So th- this comes out of Deuteronomy 19. So it's basically when somebody's been wronged or been accused of being wrong and it come, comes to court, right? It says, One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, which is also where you get the wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. It's the, the two or three witnesses is also kind of a, a legal legal understanding. 
So it goes on. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse someone of a crime, the two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in the office of the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation, and if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. All right? So somebody's lying to put somebody in prison or getting them killed, and they get caught doing that, and it's like, well, then do that to them, right? They're guilty. Or if somebody is murdered, that person who's responsible, if they're found guilty, they are to be put to death, right? This is not foreign to us. And I would also say that this law is to keep justice in the land. But before it ever gets to the courts, Jesus is saying to you, do not retaliate. It's important to note that like in the previous laws and Jesus' reinterpretations, he is not arguing against the law of the land. He is pointing out that while the law and the land must work in order to enact justice, we cannot put that justice out there. Our justice instead must be merciful. What we learn about the principle of the law through Jesus' teachings is that we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves in the face of being wrong and that that sacrifice is indeed a resistance to evil. So Jesus says in this passage after the eye for an eye, he says, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek, right? Well, stop for a second before we get to the turn the other cheek thing. Like, you can do a few things if someone slaps you, right? You can slap them back. You can cower or run in fear, or in this case is what Jesus is recommending, you can turn the other cheek. So by turning the other cheek, that is the resistance to evil. You're showing that you are not going to fight back and meet them at like this level of hate or doing wrong, and you're not going to submit to the evil. But instead, you're showing you submit to God's law, being like, if that's all you can do, I mean, I answer to something higher than just violence against me, right? Or consider following that, he says, if, if a man asks you to walk a mile, walk two, right? Go the extra mile. Probably in reference to the Roman mile, a Roman soldier in the empire could ask any Roman citizen to carry their supplies and their armor for a mile, right? Jesus is basically saying instead of resisting that by, you know, running away, saying no, or just even walking one mile with them um, so you don't get in any trouble, he says go an extra mile to show that, like, listen, you asking me to do this doesn't even bother me. In fact, I'm willing to, like, give you more. That is the resistance to evil. You gotta remember, like, they have, not only do they not have, do the Jews have nothing in common with the Roman soldier, the Roman soldier, uh, is the symbol of the occupation, right? Like, they are the enemy. That's why everybody's hoping that Jesus is the Messiah so they can overthrow Rome because these soldiers, like, are taking over everything. They're making us walk a mile. They're upset, right? So, but he's saying, don't, don't fret about that. Just, like, in fact, show that you are not under their rule by giving them more. That's, that, that's basically, uh, how he shows you can resist to it. So to, to put it in like modern context, a gay couple goes to a Christian baker and says, I want to, you know, I want a cake for our wedding. Well, the baker going to say, nope, I have the right to refuse service to anyone. Are they going to take it to a court? Is the baker going to be like, okay, I'll make the cake because I don't want to get in trouble and get boycotted? Jesus might say, if, if a gay couple comes to you and asks you to bake a cake for their wedding, bake two. Right? He said, this is how you keep your conscience clear. This is how you do what I command. And this is how you show the people that, in this case, if the gay couple is your enemy because you're opposed to it, if that's the way you want to frame it, you're like, but I'm giving him two cakes. It's like, yes, but that's your resistance. I know, it looks an awful lot like doing good to somebody. It's very strange like that. 
but it allows us to keep our conscience clear and it allows us to break down the walls of division, which is basically what has been set up there. So let's look at one more. Simple, not easy. Love your enemy, or sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And so this, this text is the one I think that deviates the most from what Jesus is saying because um, it basically is dealing more with like the, the culture of those people rather than the scripture itself. It's the only one that the, while the scripture does say love your neighbor, it doesn't say hate your enemy, but that is obviously what's being taught because he's saying, y'all have heard it said, but Jesus instead tells them, love your neighbor and love your enemy, right? And I've been reading a lot of Dr. King's sermons and listening to him, um, and he's been talking a lot about the Sermon on the Mount, which is perfect because then I could just steal as long as I cite him. <laughs> so he says, um, <clears throat> so somehow the isness of our present nature is out of harmony with the eternal oughtness that confronts us. And that simply means this, that within the best of us there is some evil, and within the worst of us there is some good. When we come to see this and we take a different attitude toward individuals, the person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation that hates you most has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every man and see deep down within him what what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love him in spite of. No matter what he does, you see God's image there. There is an element of goodness that, can, that he can never slough off. Discover the element of good in your enemy, and as you seek to hate him, find the center of goodness and place your attention there, and you will take a new attitude. So the principle in this final y'all have heard sums up not only the principles of, um, that the, of the commandments that Jesus gives, but I think it, it sums up the Torah. It sums up Jesus' life and teaching. It is nearly an impossible task to follow Jesus because of how difficult this one is. I mean, this is the simple, not easy. Love your enemy. I mean, all you have to do is think of uh, an example in your life and be like, no, I, I, can't, I can't do that. And Jesus is basically saying, but you have to. It's required. So let's finish by taking a look at what is the same and what is different about the Torah as it is written and the Torah that Jesus is looking to write on our hearts. Okay, you can go to the next one. What can be enforced? So the written Torah, the law that we think about, is in the first five books of Moses. It is God-breathed. It is the law of God given to Moses for the people of Israel to govern themselves the law is not about getting saved. The law is not about making anybody righteous. It is about essentially keeping peace and order in a land, right? That claims God as its king. But over time, and up until the life of Jesus, we have these teachings and interpretations that make it harder and harder and harder to actually live by or even understand what the original intention is. And so it basically shows that this is what ends up being kind of the powerlessness of the law because it can't defend itself. So the written Torah can only deal with behavior or acts. It can't deal with psychology. It can't force us to go above and beyond in loving kindness to show the good works towards men so that they may glorify our Father in heaven. It is meant to be, at at its base, a justice system for a country, right? Our constitution. It can't do anything more than that. But Jesus is basically saying, but yes, but it is for more than that, right? The same God-breathed Torah and system of justice was meant to do something else. It was meant to do what, you, what we read about in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant, the Torah being written on our hearts. 
So what the Torah looks like when it's written in our hearts, it deals with intentions and it deals with consciousness. Jesus shows that while the text says what it says, there is a pursuit by God inherent in that text and the Spirit of God can illuminate and empower and that power is the power of love. Y'all have heard it said, don't do bad things or do these good things. But when we sit with the laws of God and when we hear and understand and are impacted by the teachings of Jesus concerning these laws, we can see the goodness and justice and love of God in what used to be previously boring code. Because did not God command Joshua, keep this book of the law, the Torah, always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will go with you wherever you go. Was Joshua meditating on these quaint and sometimes difficult to understanding, uh, difficult to understand laws to like memorize them for a test? Or was this meditation on the Torah to show him as a leader of the people and a servant of God what it is that God desired, which is basically to act justly, love mercy, and, and walk humbly with God? So as we move towards that, I want you to remember something, that it's simple, not easy. The law of God governs the kingdom of God. If we think of Torah and its commandments and we think of legalism or something that's to be avoided or done away with, then we are missing something. We are missing what the laws are meant to do. We are missing that Jesus, our rabbi, our teacher, puts the utmost importance on the Torah, but not because he wants all of us to be bound by some impossible set of laws that we can never hope to live up to, but because a transformation of our heart is the desire of God. And the law points out our deficiencies, and if we can quiet ourselves and listen, we can hear what it is that God wants from us, to love the Lord our God, to love our neighbor, and to love our enemy. If we don't see God's desire to teach us what love is and how we can embody it embody it through the understanding of his law, then we should ask God who gives wisdom generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to us.